Well, with the help of Thaddeus Williams and his book, Don't Follow Your Heart, I want to begin tonight with a couple of questions. The first is this, how are we as Christians to live in a culture whose religion is self-worship? In other words, how are we as Christians to live in a culture that believes the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy yourself forever? How do we live in a culture that believes your feelings and emotions are always right, you should obey them at all costs, and everyone else should bow down to them? How do we live in a culture that believes you should live your own truth and allow others to live theirs? That believes you should pursue boundary-free experiences and lives? That believes you have the right to trust yourself and to never be burdened by the outdated idea of sin, that believes you should celebrate all lifestyles and love relationships is equally valid, that believes you should force the universe to bend to your individual desires, that believes you should treat your desires as unquestionable and stigmatize everyone as an oppressor who doesn't agree with or celebrate them. The second question is this. How do we as Christians live in a culture that mistrusts, criticizes, slanders, shames, condemns, alienates, ostracizes, and emotionally, psychologically, physically, socially, and even legally, pressures those who don't comply and buy into its morally bankrupt system. Well, you, don't, you won't be surprised to know that I believe that the answers are found in Scripture, the answers to those questions, and particularly here in the letter that we begin tonight in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter as we're going to see, that is just as relevant today as it was when, he originally, when Peter originally wrote it, because he wrote it to encourage and to instruct Christians who are navigating and living in a world in which they do not fit and do not belong. They're living in a world in which they are resisting assimilation, despite the threat of restriction and restraint and even death. Tonight we're going to begin looking at this letter and just looking at two verses that Grant just read. And I know uh, this is going to feel a little different after the large chunks of Genesis that we were taking, particularly toward the end when we were taking multiple chapters. Um, but I think you will be pleasantly surprised at just how much is packed into two verses, and you'll understand as we move through the letter why we're going at the pace that we're going. Uh, tonight, our outline is in its normal place. We're going to only look at three things. We're going to look at, of course, the author, as we do at the beginning of every, every letter. We're going to look at the author, we're going to look at the audience, and then we'll look at the appeal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go any further. Father, would you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word? 
and give us ears to hear it. Refresh us and convict us and comfort us with it. Would you attend to me as I do this work to which you've called me? Keep me in tune with you as I do this work. And I pray these things for Christ, for His sake, and for the sake of His church. Amen. Well, let's begin first with the author, who you may or may not be surprised to learn is debated. Uh, Some believe it was Peter and others do not. Uh, But this is not the time or place to bring forward those or talk about those arguments. Uh, Just know that I believe the letter was written by Peter. It was um, written by his own hand or uh, was dictated to or written in collaboration with Silvanus who Peter describes as a faithful brother, and it was so written so uh, between somewhere 64-66 A.D. And I'm sure you've noticed that the letter has a very common greeting as other letters of the New Testament. Uh, Peter, of course, makes a qualifying statement about himself, and most commentators agree that um, he didn't defend himself, he didn't um, think it necessary to explain himself, uh, which leads most to believe that Those who received his letter knew who he was, at least, if not personally, by reputation. But in this uh, opening phrase, in this statement that he makes, he does establish credibility and authority. And the statement was, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle, in its simplest form, uh, means a person who is sent, or a sent one, or a messenger. And it's found more than 80 times in the New Testament primarily in uh, uh, Luke, Acts, and uh, Paul's letters. Um, It usually represents a person who has been engaged by another to carry out a particular commission, but its principal use in the New Testament is to refer to a select group of men who had a special and direct commission from Christ. And their commission was that they had been sent out in His power and in His authority to proclaim the gospel and to minister in His name. They had been given the commission. They were to be also the receivers and the teachers and the writers of His final revelation. Now, because this letter was written by an apostle, we should approach it in a way that expresses our trust in the fact that God continues to speak through what He has already spoken. We should trust that it is a part of God's complete and final revelation of Himself. And all five chapters of 1 Peter and the three chapters of 2 Peter are inspired. And they've been given to us and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. That means that what Peter wrote is not simply his opinion. It wasn't simply good advice. What he wrote was and is God's Word, which was and is true, and therefore it should be listened to and obeyed. In the words of Calvin, let us not hear the doctrine as if it were subject to our judgment. But let us subject our own understanding and minds and receive it without calling it in question unless we will willfully make war against God and lift up ourselves above Him. So that's the author. What about the audience? 
Well, based on the description, if you look at verse 1, based on this description, we could assume that he was writing to churches who were made up primarily of Jewish converts. And I say that because the phrase, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, is Old Testament language to describe God's covenant people. The dispersion or the diaspora is a term that is used to describe the Jewish people who no longer lived in Palestine but have been scattered throughout the world after the Babylonian exile of 587 B.C. And over the years, what had begun forcibly had continued voluntarily, and in other words, what had began as deportation continued through immigration. However, based on the geographic region that Peter identifies, which is modern-day Turkey, that area of Asia Minor, and based on some of the things that Peter's going to say later, we know that he was actually writing to churches made up primarily of Gentile Christians. For example, in verse 18 in this chapter, chapter 1 that we'll see in in a couple weeks, he referred to feudal ways that they had been ransomed from. It's very likely that those feudal ways referred to their pagan backgrounds. And even more convincing, he said in verse 10 of chapter 2, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. So prior to the gospel, they were alienated from Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. And they were without hope. They were without God. But now they're a part of God's people. They who had been far, not, far off have been brought near. They have been grafted into to the vine. And you, those words are familiar. They're not mine. You know those as Paul's words uh, to the Ephesians. And in Jesus' own words, they were sheep. These Gentile believers were sheep who were not a, par, a part of the sheepfold that the great shepherd had come to gather into the flock. So in using the language those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Peter was doing two things. One, he was affirming who they were, who they were in the Lord Jesus. They were a part of the people of God, and they were therefore recipients and participants in the covenant promises. And two, well, let me back up. They were, by faith, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And two... He was describing their current situation metaphorically. He described them as a part of the people of God who had been scattered throughout the world and were sojourners like who? Did we spend the last year? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The world they lived in was not their true home. They were only passing through. They were looking forward to and headed toward their true heavenly home because they were citizens of God's kingdom. But notice Peter doesn't stop there. He also told them what the basis was for them now being considered a part of the elect or chosen people of God. Three statements. The first, he said they were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He matter-of-factly and without reservation and and without defense told them that the basis of their election was the result of the kind intention of God's will. 
This foreknowledge wasn't, uh, wasn't simply, isn't simply a knowing before uh, in an omniscient sense, though, yes, God is omniscient. And He had known them prior to the foundation of the world. He had known them prior to their creation. But this foreknowledge is actually more than that. It's, a, it's not just a foreknowledge, it's a foreloving. In other words, there's a, a sense in which God never began knowing and loving them because He had always known them and loved them because He had known them and loved them eternally. Therefore, His election of them wasn't based upon anything they had done. They hadn't merited it. They hadn't deserved it. It wasn't based upon their ethnicity. His choosing wasn't a reaction at all. He had initiated His electing and His choosing based upon His divine pleasure and His divine pleasure alone. It also wasn't an accident. It, wasn't a, it was actually a divine action that was according to His divine will. He had purposely set His love and affection upon them, which meant they were objects of His free grace. The second statement He made, He said they were elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. And at this particular point, he's, he's talking, he's not talking as we often do about their progressive sanctification. He was talking about their positional or their declarative sanctification. He was talking about the Holy Spirit's work in setting them apart and consecrating them as God's holy people and as, and as His special possession. He's, he was talking about the Spirit's work of renewing their nature and their minds and their hearts and their wills. In other words, he was... He's talking about their conversion, which was evidence of their election. And then thirdly, which it, that leads us to the third statement, he said they were elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now, that's what, that's what it says if you have an ESV. But the King James kind of is more accurate as far as, as what's said there. His actual statement was, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I bring that up for a, because there are multiple ways, there are obviously multiple ways of interpreting, and, and there are a lot of people much smarter than me that, that are all over kind of on this. For example, some interpret the obedience there as Christ's obedience. And they believe Peter's talking about Christ's active obedience, of course, of His work on the cross, His, his active obedience of perfect righteousness which along with his passive obedience of shedding his blood on the cross, accomplished the Father's plan of, of redemption. And so their, their thinking is that Peter's saying they were saved because their sins were forgiven and they had been clothed in his righteousness. There are others, though, that interpret this obedience as being the obedience of his readers. They believe Peter's talking about the obedience of faith, that initial response of, of believing the gospel and submitting to the gospel, not the ongoing life of obedience. 
So they would hear or they believe Peter was saying that they had been chosen by the Father, they had been um, effectually called and regenerated by the Spirit, and, and they had responded in faith and were forgiven of their sins. But there's still others who, like the ones before, believe that it is the reader's obedience, but they believe that, the, that Peter was talking about their ongoing life of obedience to the will of God. Not simply their initial response. They had been chosen. They had been effectually called and regenerated by the Spirit. They had responded in faith. And they had begun living a life of progressive sanctification. In which they were living more and more unto righteousness. Uh, they, They were dying more and more to sin and living more and more unto righteousness. And they were being conformed into the image of Christ... And they were becoming who they had been declared to be in Him. Now, I've wrestled with this all week. The language that's there and the interpretations. And there are two things that I know for certain. And the first is this. Whichever one of those is right, there's one thing we know. And as Peter was communicating that his elect readers were benefactors of a Trinitarian salvation... The Father had had chosen them and had a sovereign plan to save them. The Son accomplished that plan and redeemed them through His blood. And the Spirit applied the salvation to their lives. And the Spirit wouldn't stop His initial work, but would continue. He didn't just stop at regeneration and rebirth, but he continued to sanctify them, making sure that they became who they had been declared to be in Christ. And second, because of the use of the Old Testament language in verse 1, I'm certain that he was using covenantal language here in verse 2 as well. And I believe he was intentionally using language that was alluding to Exodus chapter 24, You remember Moses comes and and he shares with the people all that the Lord had told him and they respond to everything that you have said we will do and then Moses sprinkles them with blood. And Peter used this language to assure his readers that they were a part of the people of God. They were now a part of the people of God. But they were a part of the people of God through the new covenant not the Old Covenant. But he was drawing attention to the continuity that was there. And therefore, he was telling them that they were a part of the fulfillment of the promises of God from Exodus, or I'm sorry, from Ezekiel 36 that was a part of our Old Testament reading tonight. He wanted them to know that God had taken them from the nations and sprinkled them with clean water and cleanse them from their uncleanness and from their idols. He wanted them to know that they had been given a new heart, and a new spirit had been placed within them. He had removed their heart of stone and had given them a heart of flesh. And He put His Spirit within them and caused them to walk in His statutes and to be careful to obey His rules. And I hope hope you, you know that everything Peter said was true for them, is true for us as well. 
And just as God intended to encourage His people through Peter then, He chooses and is choosing to encourage His people through Peter today. Beloved, look to Christ and be assured of God's undeserved saving favor toward you. Rest assured. Rest in the Father's perfect, unconditional election of you. Rest in Christ's accomplished work on your behalf. You've been sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus and have been washed clean. Rest assured that the Spirit is working within you. The Spirit's sanctifying power is at work within you. We all were lost sheep. We were all not a part of the sheepfold. And the great shepherd has, has come to look for us and to draw us in. And by the Spirit, we heard his voice and we followed. So we too are called to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. And that brings us to the final point, which is the appeal. The common greeting for a letter at that time was rejoice. Peter uses another word there that sounds like it, and it's the word grace. And then he adds the Jewish greeting of peace. And so the greeting is grace and peace. And what he was doing, he was doing much more than just giving them a greeting of well-being or wishing them well-being. First, he was reminding them, again, they were recipients of God's kindness and his undeserving or unmerited disposition of favor. But he was also reminding them of the peace that went along with that. Right? It, overflowed, it, it was um, the outworking, the, the, that peace was the outworking of, the, of, of grace. And it was peace not only with God, because they had been reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, but it was peace from God that resulted from that peace with God, which included wholeness, satisfaction, and rest that only He could provide. And it, it sounds as if He's making an appeal through prayer. It sounds as though He was appealing to God that, that they would not only, um, they would not simply experience grace and peace, but that grace and peace would be multiplied upon them. But really, it was more than an, than an appeal. It was actually a pronouncement of blessing. Just as Aaron or I pronounce a blessing over you each week, Peter was pronouncing this blessing. He was making an authoritative declaration over them. In the words of Edmund Clowney, he says, What makes a greeting a blessing is the work of the Spirit. When a minister of God's word pronounces a blessing at the end of a service of worship, it is the action of God's spirit that gives power to the words. The words of blessing are not magic. They do not communicate grace by their own power or because we speak them. But when they are spoken in faith to the people of God, God honors them. They are much more than wishes, more even than prayers. They declare God's favor toward those who are in Christ. So in saying, may grace and peace 
be multiplied to you. He was declaring to them that they were recipients of God's lavish gift of grace and peace. Gifts of grace and peace. He knew it was God's profuse abundance of grace and peace that would, in Paul's words, surpass their comprehension and sustain them in the midst of any and all circumstances that they would experience. And brothers and sisters, whether we talk about our day-to-day personal lives or if we talk about the future of our church corporately in the midst of this growing culture that is consistently more hostile toward Christ and His people, we will not be able to handle what is before us on our own, in our own strength, no matter how resolute we may be. Our only hope is the extravagance and the liberality of God and His grace and His peace that He lavish, He continues to lavish upon us as His people. Peter wrote this letter because as kingdom citizens, Christians are strangers. These are all words we've heard for the last year, right? Christians are strangers, aliens, foreigners, outsiders living in the culture of their day. And residents or insiders tend to be afraid of outsiders. And fear often leads to suspicion and criticism and mistreatment, alienation among other things. And while systematic persecution hadn't yet begun at this particular time that he was writing, it was coming. And in the words of one commentator, unofficial complaints by ordinary people could at times still lead to official action by the government. So he wanted to equip them. He wanted to equip them for what they were experiencing at that time, in that present moment, but also to prepare them for what was to come what was down the road, what he knew was in the future. And he was concerned about how they would live in the midst of the hostility because they were not only exiles, they were ambassadors. And as we'll see as we work through this letter, he didn't call them to withdraw from the the culture and isolate themselves. He didn't He obviously doesn't call them or didn't call them to conform to the culture, but he also we will see he doesn't call them to transform the culture either. And beloved, the same is true for, true for us today. We're strangers, we're aliens, we're foreigners, we're outsiders in the midst of the culture in which we live. And, and while systematic persecution has not begun yet, it's moving in that direction in a more accelerated pace. And we're definitely seeing unofficial complaints leading to official actions. But we're not called to flee, to isolate, to conform, or transform. We're exiles, but we're also ambassadors. And our concern should be our witness to those in our neighborhoods, those in our cities, those in our towns, we're not called to join in the self-worship, though we struggle, we, we struggle doing it, right? We, we, we struggle not conforming to it, but we're not called to join in 
And we're not called to comply or buy into the moral, morally bankrupt system. We aren't called, again in the words of Edmund Clowney, to pursue the mirage of humanistic hope. We're called to obey Jesus Christ until the day of His appearing. What will give us strength in the moments of weakness and heartache and pain and in the moments when our faith is wavering and our flesh is weak? What will give us the strength that we need when the days are long and hard and the Lord seems to tarry and we have difficult decisions that we have to make? What will give us the strength that we need when we face mistrust and criticism and slander and shame and condemnation and alienation and ostracism, when we face the emotional, psychological, physical, social, and even legal pressure? What will give us the strength when we suffer the consequences of not complying? and of not buying in. What will give us the strength when we resist assimilation despite the restriction and the restraint? And yes, at some point, maybe even death. It will be our grasp of and our grip on our Trinitarian salvation and the lavish gifts of God's grace and peace. May we stand firm in grace. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith? And love and meekness and readiness of mind. May we meditate on it, hide it in our hearts, and may it bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. We pray these things for your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen.